Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Leah Parody. I'm a professor of history at Slippery Rock University and co-host of Lies Agreed Upon, a partner podcast of the New Books Network that looks at how Hollywood uses history and shapes our understanding of history. I'm talking today with Liam Stanley, a lecturer in politics at the University of Sheffield, about his new and fascinating book, Britain Alone, How a Decade of Conflict Remade a Nation, published by Manchester University Press. In Britain alone, Dr. Stanley advocates for and uses innovative methods and approaches to make sense of how and why political, social, and cultural events in Britain developed the way that they did after the financial crisis of 2008. Welcome to the New Books Network, Liam. I've been looking forward to talking to you about your book. Brilliant. Thanks Thanks so much for, for inviting me along. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bear with me while I provide a little bit of a setup for our listeners before asking my first question. In Britain Alone, you examine how over the past decade or so, various crises have encouraged a particular process of nationalization in Britain. Typically, increased scarcity of resources will twist and intensify existing tensions about access to those resources who should have access, who shouldn't, and why. Traditionally, you point out, there are generally two arguments about what stimulates this nationalist sentiment. Um, The first is the cultural backlash thesis. Individuals perceive themselves as left outside the imagined community of their nation because they don't see themselves as benefiting from the state's actions. And furthermore, they see undeserving others as benefiting instead. And then there's the economic pendulum thesis. In this argument, people worry that the state itself has lost sovereignty to outside forces and is no longer in control. And so we see liberalization and then protectionism occur in reactive swings, responding to these perceived crises or their resolution. Now, Much of your project in Britain alone is to take a deep dive into the stimuli of a single decade to escape both of those long-established framing mechanisms that artificially separate cultural and economic motivators. So, So let's start with what I think of as Austerity Britain 2.0. After the financial crash, Uh, Britain was governed through and justified by evoking a national emergency. And so I'd like you to unpack a quote to get us us started. Um, In your first chapter, you you introduce it, um, your argument, and you're sort of setting up a lot of what you go on to, to, to discuss throughout the rest of the book. And, and so to set the scene, it's, it's 2010, 
conservative prime minister, David Cameron, is announcing the coalition government, which is formed through an alliance with the Liberal Democrats in this moment of national crisis after the subprime collapse triggered a global recession. And he sets out his agenda, which has clear Churchillian undertones. He says he's speaking for a people that believe in themselves, a Britain that believes in itself. And then he goes on to say, at this time of great national challenge, two parties have come together to help make it happen. Your country needs you, and it takes two. It takes two to build that strong economy. We'll balance the budget. We'll boost enterprise. But you start those businesses that lead us to growth. It takes two to build that big society. We'll reform those public services. We'll devolve power. But you step forward and seize that opportunity. I know the British people, and they are not passengers. They are drivers. So come on. Let's pull together. Let's come together. Let's work together in the national interest. Okay, Liam. So what do you see going on here? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so as you say, when Cameron here is talking about this time of great national challenge, he's largely referring to the Conservative Party's commitment to austerity measures. That is reducing the UK's fiscal deficit by introducing an unprecedented plan of, of spending cuts. And that was what uh, the coalition government pursued in its, in its time in government. So this quote is part of their justification for these harmful and unpopular policy choices. And as you and as you as you point out, it's interesting that they did so in such grand historical nationalist terms, saying that austerity is a necessary response to an emergency that threatens the country and its survival. But cleverly, they did so in a positive way, uh, with a kind of narrative that says. The British people are special and we can renew ourselves through rediscovering lost virtues of thrift and austerity, so to live within our means. And that two otherwise opposing political parties were joining forces in a coalition government, which is very unusual in the British Westminster system, really added to this sense of emergency. So it's interesting you say it's uh, Churchillian because these sorts of comments work through in part an analogy and a nostalgia for Britain's wartime glories. So there's this common myth that Britain saved Europe uh, from fascism through collective sacrifice, both on the home front and the front line. And Cameron's kind of saying, now there's a kind of similar situation, except this time it's the fiscal deficit that poses the existential threat. And that means, to quote him, your country needs you. Like, it couldn't, the, the analogy is so clear. And there's so many fascinating things about this. One of the things that, that's really gripped me is how this narrative was so effective in winning over the public to the austerity programme, which should be a very unpopular policy, given that it's imposing harm on, on many people. So public polling around the time showed that many voters in the UK agreed that the fiscal deficit needs cutting, and indeed the previous Labour government was to blame for it. 
But this narrative also had unintended consequences. Uh, so through this justification of austerity, you know, the coalition government was in effect saying to its peoples, there is not as much to go around as there was before. And unless we now all live within our means, then the country's future is at stake. And so part of the book's analysis is to kind of, I guess, follow that a little bit and say, well, what happens if the state starts saying that is that people understandably are going to sort of wonder where the money went and which people or perhaps what types of people more accurately kind of took that money. So what this means is like simming resentment about politics and distribution from the good times before the crisis suddenly become urgent and intensified in these new hard times. And so one way this played out is contestation over the boundaries of Britain itself. So who should be able to access the nation's wealth? And within that, who should be prioritised as most deserving of help? And so with austerity and scarcity and inequality, there's this sort of social impulse to bring in and narrow those boundaries, which legitimated a kind of nationalist politics. Now, in the book, I, I name this process as nationalisation, not in the typical sense of bringing private enterprise into state ownership, but in a wider sense of making the states more national. Now, making the state more national can involve all sorts of moves, such as excluding non-nationals from state resources, building a national health service or campaigning for national independence. And all of these did indeed take place in the years following the global financial crisis in Britain. So this nationalisation is what the book is about. Uh, and Brexit is the most obvious and important example of nationalisation, but it's far from the only one. Yes, exactly. And we'll certainly uh, get into that because I think that that is uh, one of the most useful aspects of the book is the the you know sort of clear uh, articulation of the fact that Brexit was not in fact the only uh, the only one. Um, so you you talk about how it becomes a question of uh, sort of who's in who's out, um, but also you know we both in me describing Cameron as uh, you know Churchill wannabe and and you indeed also uh, highlighting that. Um, uh, we've we've drawn these connections between the World War II era and uh, and the the twenty teens. Um, in in chapter three, which is called White Britain, you explore ways that Britain attempted to maintain its global relevance in sort of two moments as the empire shrank. And then how to expand its influence in Europe as the EU grew, and so you you point out these 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 two uh, impulses that come out of that. First, we have the British Nationality Act of 1948, and then we have the welcoming of the people from Eastern European nations after the addition of eight additional countries to the EU in 2002. And you point out that both of those resulted in a far greater uh, phenomenon of in-migration than was expected at the time, either post-48 or post-2002, which I think we... uh, 
uh, can both, uh, you know, and people from today sort of can look back and, and think, why, how is this not an obvious, uh, an obvious outcome? But, uh, you know, at the, at the time, it, it, it just, it didn't seem obvious. Um, and so you argue that the unintended consequences in, in both of these cases, uh, the unintended consequence of greater in-migration prompted a recasting of Britishness. And that that is what has played out in many, many ways, but particularly, uh, which I think is an interesting one to point out because a lot of people might not draw this, this uh, connection, but particularly in shifting policies around access to the National Health Service. Could you... Um, uh, uh, sort of expand on explain why it is that in migration ends up being so directly related to the national health service yeah that's that's a great question um so you're right i i, I became fascinated by par- the parallels between these two moments in um in post-war british political history and, that, and as you point out, there are parallels between them. Uh, but I'm also interested in a kind of like continuous history with them. Um, and one way I try and do that is through linking it to the NHS, as you say, which interestingly uh, was founded also in 1948, which was the same year as the British Nationality Act. I suspect that's not just a coincidence, although it may, may indeed be. So th- I think probably most people are aware that the NHS is this is key to the modern myth of, of Britishness. So, you know, viewers of the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony in London may remember the moment where the NHS was celebrated so explicitly. And that the NHS was founded after the Second World War is often mythologised as this great moment for the UK uh, where the state rewarded the people for their sacrifices in securing victory for Europe. And it's kind of come to stand for, you know, British liberal values of kind of collective unity, generosity and, and tolerance. And it's one, one, one area where most people across the political divide sort of agree on that the NHS is good and it should have more, more money. And I'm sure we all remember, again, the Brexit bus with the NHS, NHS pledge. But it's important to note that as, as well as being a post-war project, the NHS was also a post-imperial project. And again, in, in, in my terms, I'd call it a nationalisation project because it was so central to making a British nation state uh, of which the boundaries of Britain were no longer just defined uh, by empire. So what I mean by that is, is it's important to recall that, you know, if we could go back to, say, Victorian times and we asked people about Britain, uh, the meaning of Britain would mean, uh, would refer as much to the empire as it did the political union between England and Scotland. And so the NHS, and it's not coincidence that it's called the National Health Service, was a key moment uh, in this moment where you know, Britain was kind of withdrawing from its global role after after World War Two, in reconstituting the British state in more national uh, terms. And throughout its history, who's able to access it has kind of been this like key 
uh, I guess like flashpoint or or ground in which debates about uh, what Britain is and where its boundaries are drawn are always there. So although the NHS was made free at the point of service for everyone when it was founded, everyone being ordinarily resident in the UK, uh, there's always been anxieties about immigrants supposedly unfairly accessing this, this resource. So it shouldn't be surprising that these anxieties intensified and flared up in the austerity period, where there was lots of wider anxiety and concern about state resources and who should be getting what. So in, in the book, I analyse how uh, concerns about migrants and, to use the terminology, overseas visitors uh, using NHS led to new restrictions being imposed in, in the austerity years. So policies included an immigration health surcharge where newly arrived immigrants have to make an upfront payment to cover potential NHS use, which they have to do before even a visa will be issued. Uh, and also there's an overseas patient upfront charge <laughs> Uh, where overseas patients accessing secondary care, uh, most notably cancer treatment and maternity care, uh, are charged up front at 150% of market value for that for that service. And so, you know, this to me is like a textbook case of, of nationalisation. It's realigning the state with the nation. In this case, the state provision of healthcare to those deemed more British, uh, with some really scandalous consequences that, that I outline in, in the book. Yes, and, and uh, I point out that, uh, just as a, a personal uh, uh, interjection, that this uh, expanded out to other policies as well, because, for example, um, the, uh, the um, pension eligibility requirements changed around the same time so that the non-British spouses of British pensioners are now under the new pension scheme no longer eligible to access their spouse's pension benefits uh, if they aren't also residents of the UK. And so that, uh, you know, and we can perfectly well understand that that would most likely impact non-white people uh, uh, it also potentially would impact somebody like me, who is married to a UK national. Um, uh, I, I get grandfathered in under the previous uh, version, but that's why I know about it is because it's this very interesting. It's an, another way that, as you say, the the boundaries of the nation and the boundaries of the state are being uh, have been uh, realigned uh, uh in this in this period, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so, so in chapter four, you discuss how the economic collapse of the late aughts and early teens um, made it much more difficult to, you know, okay, there's this motivation to isolate immigrants in a sense, as a, you know, even more than traditionally they are, as this kind of uniquely, um, potentially undeserving population. But there had been a longstanding, and not just in Britain, but everywhere, um, you know, a longstanding tradition of, of sort of delineating between the, the deserving poor and the, you know, undeserving poor. Um, but it, with the economic collapse, 
it made it much more difficult to blame the poor for being poor because it was so apparent that this catastrophe was um, striking everyone. Um, and so uh, this had been a political strategy that had worked both for, you know, it was a, a bipartisan political strategy. It worked for, for Thatcher. It worked for new labor, you know, hell, like we can go all the way back to the Victorian era, era to, to see a nice fine tradition of it. This you argue though, brought about the, the, the fact that they couldn't do this anymore brought about rhetorical strategies being, you know, changing, mm-hmm. And um, and that these were shared by those on both the far left of the Labour Party and the far right of the Conservative Party. So can you explain this surprising intersection between, for example, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's advocacy on behalf of policies benefiting those, quote unquote, left behind and the rhetoric of UKIP and leave supporters? Yes. So. As you say, the the original uh, austerity period of say like twenty ten to twenty fourteen was characterised by blaming the poor for being poor, um, and throughout this there was kind of um, different scapegoats were stigmatised for their supposedly irresponsible behaviour that was costing the taxpayer and therefore causing the country to live beyond its means. So single mothers and troubled families, asylum seekers, welfare recipients, and and so on. And this kind of extended a a form of governing that pre-existed the period, which was to treat these issues as a problem of social exclusion, which kind of suggested that if one could just change the culture and behaviour of certain so-called problematic um, parts of the population, then the problem would fix itself because these um, these people would be able to properly integrate themselves into the labour market, which would kind of solve itself. So to put it crudely, there was this idea um, that everyone could win, really. If they could just change themselves, um, everyone could benefit. Um, and this, in the initial period, helped legitimise austerity politics Um because it meant that uh, the coalition government could focus some of the sort of pain of those politics on those stigmatised groups that were portrayed as undeserving of help. But yes, this, I think, started to run out of steam because it just couldn't be maintained that it's the it's poor people's fault for being poor when the recovery from the global financial crisis was so weak and austerity was evidently not helping, to put it mildly. So there was this clear shift in the mid-2010s when this sort of old idea of social exclusion became supplanted by a different idea, like a kind of idea of inequality. And of course, if inequality is deemed a problem, then different solutions are going to seem compelling. So it's kind of, I guess it's important to understand how inequality itself became, became seen as the problem. And there's many reasons for this. Um, including the fact that income and wealth inequality continued to rise despite the global financial crisis, which was being better understood thanks to pioneering research by Thomas Piketty and others. It's important to note too, though, the role of a series of scandals that really moralised this issue. So I think there's three scandals that are really important. 
the bank bailouts in 2008, the MPs' expenses scandal in 2009, and then a series of offshore tax abuse scandals from 2012, which are still going. Um, and these three were all very important. Taken together, these scandals sort of challenged the idea uh, of kind of meritocracy, the idea that those who work the most and who have the right kind of behaviour and culture uh, will get their kind of just desserts through the kind of capitalist order, if if you want to use that phrasing. Uh, And it showed that as well as there being um, a kind of undeserving poor, there's also an undeserving rich who are also costing the taxpayer and therefore causing the country to live beyond this means. So these three scandals were linked by a sense of outrage that there is this elite group who are disconnected from the rest of society, who uh, are held to different legal standards with their rule-breaking or failures going unpunished. So in this world, rather than the poor being the major problem, it was the elite and, you know, this is, this is complex, and there's a lot more to say about this. But the, the important point I think I want to make is that this kind of inequality, um, where people were felt they were being left behind by a sort of cheating or game-playing elite, is ripe for political projects that promise a form of nationalisation. And so this is where uh, Corbyn's Labour Party and UKIP and the Leave campaigns come in. Because while, of course, they are very different, they both gained their momentum and popularity from these same political conditions. So Corbyn's Labour were able to mobilise on the sense that with stagnating growth, with stagnating wages and less good quality jobs, some parts of society are systematically losing out and staying poor as a feature of the system. And that therefore it was Labour's job to rebuild Britain to quote Corbyn, for the many, not the few. And so their, many of their high-profile policies included you know, state ownership, higher taxes, and increased workers' rights. And this fits with the definition of nationalisation. And like the Corbyn Labour Party, the political projects lead the European Union fared off the inequalities of the post-crash period too. Unlike it, however, leavers were able to rhetorically mobilise this kind of homogenous and class-crossing imagined community. So this left-behind or white working class was at the basis of this. And nationalisation too was at the centre of their pitch, which was, of course, to sort of paraphrase their campaign, to say that by leaving the European Union, the UK can take back control, which, to put in slightly fancier terms, is is saying uh, we'd be better off if we could align British state authority with the British National Territory. So very different. I don't want to say they're the same, of course, but they are responding to the same political, economic, social conditions, I think. Yes, and just to to build on that a little bit or to to pick it apart a little bit more, I mean, if we look at those those scandals, because not uh, not all of our listeners probably are are familiar with the the MP um, uh, expenses um, scandal, that that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but does that sort of feed into the um, already established but growing sense that with British membership in the European Union, that you now have this other layer of 
governmental representation and bureaucracy that's siphoning more money uh, and, and away from uh, average the average Briton and also imposing regulations on the average Briton that are European and not British. And so in a weird way, the, the, the expense scandal, even though it's MPs and not MEPs, it's this, it's this kind of, it's it sort of coalesces around this sense of all of this is too much government. Uh, we have too much government in our lives telling us what to do, but they get to do whatever they want. Is that? Yes, I think that's exactly right. So you're right, of course, the MPs expenses scandal was about, you know, um, the House of Commons in, in the UK. But it, it, it fed into a wider sense of what some scholars call like anti-politics. So as you say, the idea that there's there's too much politics, uh, there's too much government, too much regulation, um, and that those who are charged with representing the people are not fulfilling their roles. They are perhaps like career politicians or they're just in it for themselves. Um, and that they together kind of represent along with, say, like in, in this case, like bankers and sort of like um, those rich enough to um, engage in uh, offshore tax abuse kind of make up like an elite who have too much power. And so we should therefore seek to to restore power somehow to the national peoples. So that's exactly right. It, it, even though it was about Britain, it, it still could incorporate um, the, the European Union and the representatives there. And then the offshore uh, financial scandals is a kind of a reinforcing of the downside of globalization and the downside of neoliberalism. This kind of, you can put your money anywhere as long as you've got so much of it that you can afford to put your money anywhere and nobody will know about it. Whereas we're stuck with the conditions we have here as Britons, you know, we can only function within this country. So everybody should be functioning within this country. Is that a, a kind of, again, total oversimplification, but is that a, a kind of a fair connecting of, of, of certain cultural dots? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So there's, there's, there's a couple of things. So one is uh, there's a, um, I guess, an, an intellectual called um, uh, Charles Goodhart, who came up with this schema that proved very popular in uh, promoting Brexit politics, which has now become very common, which is between the anywheres and the somewheres. Uh, and I think in some ways the idea of having a trust fund in, a, um, in say, like the British Virgin uh, Islands, I, can't, I, I struggle to think of anything that's more kind of anywhere and not somewhere than, than something like that. Um, and yeah, there's this sense that there's this sense in um, that's come out in uh, research into public opinion in in Britain that it's uh, sort of ordinary, hardworking people who are not able to benefit from their system. Um, so there's this is kind of common refrain from the literature when where. Uh, members of the public speak about how, you know, the rich can play by their own rules um, because most sort of middle class people aren't even rich enough to have an accountant to set up 
<laughs> these tax evasion uh, swindles and um, themselves. So there's this sense that yeah, people are playing by different different rules, using Britain's role in the world uh, and um, favourable political conditions to cheat the system, and it's the people in the middle who who lose out the most. Right. Yes. And then, of course, you know, this takes us to Brexit, right? But interestingly, in the book, um, you give us a little bit of a twist on that because, uh, you know, in the long lead up to the Brexit vote, it's that referendum that was definitely the, the focus of attention, not only inside most of Britain, but also elsewhere in the world. But But you point out that in historical terms, the Scottish independence referendum accord, occurred pretty much at the same time and that we need to recognize that they were both products of the same motivating forces, which I, I found a, a fascinating observation. So can, can you elaborate on, on that? Yeah, yes, of course. Um, so, yeah, of course. so I guess it's worth saying how that maybe I'll start by saying how they're different. So, you know, they're not often compared because you know, one was national, the other one subnational. Brexit is always, almost always incorporated into an analysis of a kind of global populist revolt. So it's often Brexit and Trump. Uh, and Scottish nationalism is left out of that for various reasons. Uh, one, Brexit is a project to kind of like restore and transform the British state, whereas Scottish independence aims to break it. And of course, one result was in and the other one was out. So one of, one of them has destroyed, well, not destroyed a union, but uh, removed a unit from the union and the other one has ended up maintaining it. So they are, you know, they are very different. But if we see them as, if we put them in the political context of um, the financial crisis and its fallout um, and see them as nationalisation projects, we can start really seeing the similarities because both projects are fundamentally about gaining the formal authority to realign Britain's nation-state boundaries and so transform Britain's integration into the global economy. It's just that they have very, very different visions on, on, how, to, on how to do that. So I, I guess my simple way of, of thinking about it is that it surely cannot be a coincidence that the two most urgent questions of Britain's constitution or its nascent nation-state configuration so scotland and the eu what were its two unions became urgent enough for generation defining referendums within 18 months of one another you know interestingly this mirrored the 1970s which was also a period of capitalist crisis where there was also two referendums on on these topics around 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 the same time in the case of the um, 2010s you know, both of these movements saw their popularity and political feasibility increase rapidly because of what we were discussing just now, these inequalities of post-crash politics, where there is um, motivation to start looking at ways to reform politics itself rather than just kind of um, reform it uh, around the edges. And so, you know, the referendums of the are the most striking manifestation of kind of post-crash politics because it's not just normal political conflict over who gets what, when and how, which is kind of what politics is, but it's 
those really profound questions about what should even be the boundaries in which that political conflict takes place. So yeah, in in the book, I put these two political projects, Brexit and um, and Scottish independence, alongside Corbyn's Labour as the three major political movements or projects of post-crash British politics. And all three are, I would say, nationalisation projects. And I think it's just, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves of, you know, political life before the crisis. So, you know, if we can sort of think back to, say, 2004, when I think, at least for me, there's still this sense of living in, like, the end of history. Um, And any one of these three projects gaining the electoral prominence they did in the last decade would have been completely unforeseen, let alone all three projects having big electoral moments in in the space of three years. So I think we can only account for that through the politics of the crash and its and its fallout. Yeah, and it's and it is um, it's fascinating to think of three things so on their surface quite different from one another, being in fact um, so uh, having coming out of the same origins, I guess, or sort of the same um, motivations. So, so when we get to your final chapter. Uh, you had this uh, this convenient uh, uh, happenstance. I'm assuming uh, that what happened. I'm, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there you are. You're 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 writing your book. You're finishing up your book. You're 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 seeing the seeing the finish line. And then, of course, we have COVID. And uh, so, in your final chapter, you turn to Britain in the time of COVID. Um, and perhaps as this is an experience that is fresh in listeners' mind and also is kind of a shared experience of all the all listeners, could you talk about the official and unofficial responses of the British people and the British state to the coronavirus crisis and the ways they continue or undermine these forces of nationalization and, and nationalism that you explore in the rest of Britain alone? Yeah, so um, yeah, you're, you're quite right about the, the, the writing process. It's just as I was finishing, everything changed, and I, I felt like I had to um, update the narrative for, the, for that first part of, of lockdown. So I guess it, it, it might be useful to to kind of situate when Britain locked down in, in so the response to the coronavirus started in February 2020 and then Britain locked down fully in mid-March 2020. So it's important to remember the context of that because um, although Boris Johnson was Prime Minister for a while, he'd only just recently won his large mandate in the 2019 general election, which was in, which was in uh, December. So... Part of the context is this Johnson government, which is which just come in on, of course, the promise of getting Brexit done. That was their kind of that was um, what they did, and uh, part of the story of their election win was being voted in by the so-called Red Wall, which is a group of typically Labour voting constituencies. Uh, that kind of stretch across um, parts of the north of north of England, and are not perfectly, but is 
basically the same kind of imagined groups that uh, a lot of the Brexit rhetoric of the left behind or white working classes corresponded to. And so uh, many um, commentators at the time were looking at this new Johnson agenda and saying, you know, we've got something very interesting going on here because um, their agenda is going to be economic left wing because uh, they're promising lots of um, intervention um, in terms of, you know, things like forms of industrial policy and uh, raising taxes, but they're going to be culturally right wing um, in terms of a kind of like so-called anti-woke agenda. And this was supposedly to um, speak to the values of this red wall constituency. You know, I think that interpretation isn't quite right. I think it's a little bit simpler than that. I just think that Johnson, the Johnson project is best thought of as a nationalist project. And, there, and if we think of it in those terms, this idea of it being this contradiction between economically left and culturally right kind of disintegrates and it just seems much more coherent than it might otherwise um, be. But at the end of the day, we have this government coming in, the Conservative government, that's promising lots more intervention into, into the economy. Um, and so Rishi Sunak, the newly installed Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, was kind of able to ride this wave in the response to the coronavirus because the UK's response, like um, like many, well, like some other Western states, was to um, try and keep the economy open as long as possible, um, which meant delaying um, lockdown restrictions um, considerably later than many other comparable nations. Um whilst also looking to intervene to, to, to keep things going. But when Britain did eventually lock down, uh, the kind of major policy was um, furloughing. So um, furloughing being the state was, for those people who were unable to work uh, and go to work, um, the state would basically step in and contribute 80% of those people's um, salaries. And so... Um, you know, as this, you know, writing this book and looking for this narrative, I kind of when I saw this happening, uh, you know, commentators were kind of jumping the gun and saying, "Well, what this represents is nationalisation of salaries." Um, yet that's not really what ended up happening. That it ended up being a really technocratic uh, process, and in a way, it, the Johnson government, I. F- I felt almost like missed an opportunity from their own kind of um, uh, statecraft uh, position to kind of turn furloughing into this like nationalising moment because it's not it's not difficult to imagine a slightly alternative set of events where you know instead of furloughing this kind of slightly strange technical term we have something like the Great British Job Saver or, or whatever it is which which plays into this. So this is the so some of the things that happened, I found I found quite unexpected in terms of the formal responses from the from the British state, but then some of the informal responses seemed seemed much more nationalistic again, which which I found unexpected. So the the one that really uh, 
the phenomenon that really stuck out to me was this phenomenon called um, clap for carers. And I'm unsure to, to what extent this was replicated elsewhere across the world. It, it definitely was uh, replicated. I mean, certainly in the United States uh, and in uh, in Canada, I can attest to the fact that it was a very common uh, practice in, in both places. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, and so in, in the UK, it, it, again, unsurprisingly, given some of the things we've spoken about, it came, it, it got wrapped up in the kind of NHS mythology of, of, of Britishness, where NHS workers in particular were, were being heralded as these kind of like national, almost like wartime-like heroes. Um, and again, it seems, you know, that it, it's interesting thinking back to that period because it, it just feels so alien alien now but there was this sense where it's like oh well maybe you know um uh people who do incredibly important work including in the nhs who are now being celebrated through this um through this kind of symbolic gesture this might kind of like lead to i guess more material forms of kind of respect and and recognition and maybe a form of you know left-wing nationalist kind of um, intervention but again the the energy is kind of really really fizzed out of that and so the kind of main nationalist uh, things that have happened have been slightly odd things like this character um captain tom who um it was a retired uh, member of the armed forces who um raised lots and lots of money for the nhs and other charities through doing these like sponsored um walks and he became this kind of like slightly um slightly interesting um representative of what it means to be britishness in this in this period so someone who worked for the armed forces someone who uh was doing charity work for the nhs um but i i, I guess what i wanted i wanted to be careful about in analyzing the initial lockdown period about um overstretching the kind of narrative of the book and saying everything is continuing when really i guess one of the lessons of the book is that there is no kind of like central logic to to these things like the politics is constantly kind of like splintering into 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 different ways um, and so i was kind of quite wary of just saying like, oh this is just an extension of what's happening it's actually it's quite complex and and unexpected what's going on um which was a which was a kind of analysis that probably didn't please my editor very much, but I thought was the, <laughs> the <laughs> well. I mean, I think that uh, one of the reasons why it is it it works so well is because it actually does sort of reinforce a, a thread that runs through the book, which is this sort of the opportunistic nature of nationalization rhetoric and the, the national, you know, the the phenomenon of nationalization is that it is uh, opportunistic and not um, partisan and that it will, um, it, it will manifest in, in a, a great variety of ways, which is why we need to not be um, focused in very sort of narrow frameworks in, in terms of analyzing it, which is of course, you know, where you start, uh, the book is sort of asserting that we have to to step away from uh, those sort of predetermining um, uh, theses, and so I, I think it actually is a it's a nice sort of uh, capper uh, to to the book. So thank you very much. Uh, we we uh, ran a little bit longer, uh, but I it was wonderful. It, it, I think it was worth it because it's such a a, a complex. Um, 
in a good way, complex book that really uh, has uh, is just uh, uh, fascinating in its in its treatment. And so I'm I'm really happy that uh, we had a chance to talk at length uh, about it. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Me too, absolutely. Thank you very much, Doctor Stanley's book. Britain Alone is available anywhere you get your quality books from Manchester University Press. Thanks, Liam.